Servus and greetings from Vienna. My name is Anita Posch. Thank you for listening to Bitcoin und Co., my podcast that's introducing the philosophy, ideas and people behind Bitcoin. Hi, my dear listener. Welcome to the show. Today, I want to tell you that I'm really, really happy about the feedback I get from you from all over the world. Yesterday, for instance, I received a message from a listener from Maui. I've heard from people learning German, living in English-speaking countries who enjoy listening to my German and the English podcast. People recommend the show to others. That's so great. A big thank you goes out to every single one of you. Today's guest is Jameson Lopp. He is very well known in the Bitcoin space for his expertise on security, technology and privacy. He is maintaining a resources page with links to valuable Bitcoin information. And since his house was swatted by police in 2017, after an unknown attacker reported a false hostage situation, he is a cypherpunk at heart. Jameson is also the CTO at Casa, a company devoted to providing products for personal serenity. Before we start, I wanted to tell you that you can find all reading recommendations mentioned by my guests on the books page at bitcoinandco.com. And I have short messages from my sponsors for you. If you want to be independent and secure your personal financial freedom with Bitcoin, you have to hold your own keys and must not use a custodial wallet. There are several ways to achieve that. One is to use a well-built hardware wallet like the Bitbox O2 by Shift Crypto Security from Switzerland. They have two versions, a Bitcoin-only to minimize the attack surface even further and a multi-edition for a variety of coins. With the upcoming app for Android, you can connect the hardware wallet directly with your phone and send and receive Bitcoin on the go. Check it out at shiftcrypto.ch. That's shiftcrypto.ch. You'll get free shipping with the code ANITA. You are a business owner and want to start accepting cryptocurrencies? Look no further. Salamantex gives you the all-in-one crypto payment solution. You can find all Salamantex merchants and further information about their digital payment system at www.salamantex.com slash customers. That's salamantex.com slash customers. So hello. Jameson Lopp, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Great to be here. First, I want to thank you. Uh, you've added my podcast to your Great Resources website. And um, I know you're curating this site, so you only put um, things on it that you like, I guess. Absolutely. Wouldn't put it on there if it wasn't high quality. Thank you. <laughs> so you're the CTO of Casa at the moment. Can you please introduce yourself? Uh, what's your story? Um, how did you get into the Bitcoin space? Well, I have been in the Bitcoin space full time for almost five years now, and I was an enthusiast for several years before that. 
really, I got involved when I realized that Bitcoin was not dying. I, I had heard about it a number of times and, you know, always wrote it off as something that was going to get hacked. Everyone w was going to lose their money and it wouldn't last that much longer. But, you know, after a few years, I said, you know, maybe I should look into this. And when I finally sat down and read the white paper, I realized as a computer scientist that it was actually solving a very interesting problem that I had never even thought about before. And that was what really piqued my curiosity because it, it gave me this idea that you know, if money is an abstract concept, that it really belongs to humanity in general, then it makes sense that money should be an open collaborative project that anyone who cares can participate in, rather than being something that only some elites get to decide how it works. Yeah, and I think in the history of money, it always was um, coming into existence from the edges and from the people, actually. Or Is yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, it was sort of a, a natural evolution. I mean, much like language itself, there there is no authority who decides how language works or evolves. It just sort of happens organically over time, and then people will write down the rules that have sort of appeared out of thin air. But no one has, you know, dictated these rules uh, from an authoritative standpoint. So it's quite the opposite to like nation state money and to corporate money. Definitely. Uh, I believe that it is a more you know, pure form of economic interaction. Mm. Uh, you said it's like language. I mean, money is language in a way. Mm -hmm. I think it's even, even there's the saying that Bitcoin cannot be um, forbidden because it's the freedom of speech. Yes, you know, it is it would be like trying to forbid uh mathematics or cryptography or uh or really forbidding the use of the internet itself. It's you know, essentially a new type of communication protocol. Hmm. And you think of the global perspective here, I guess, like also being able to have a unique medium of exchange or a bearer instrument and which is like uh, accessible for everybody worldwide because Yes, at least, you know, if, if we can get the rest of the world on the internet and we can <laughs> improve the, uh, the communication to the rest of the world of what Bitcoin is. And this is why I do think it's important that we, we work on, you know, more translations and bridging the gaps between, uh, different, uh, cultures and languages. You said before there was a point when you realized that Bitcoin solved a problem that hasn't been solved before. Which one was that? Yes, the, the Byzantine general's problem is how do you, you know, coordinate amongst a group of actors where there may be enemy actors in their midst that are trying to disrupt that coordination. Okay, and uh, Satoshi uh, could solve this with the proof of work or with the consensus? What What was the... The solving puzzle. Yes, I mean, it really was uh, the proof of work. Uh, you know, this allows us to create, you know, snapshots and points in time that say, okay, we have consensus about the state of the system at this point in time. And then, of course, you go forward and a lot of things happen, unconfirmed transactions, whatnot, and, and none of those are really uh, settled. But then as we add more proof of work, create another block, add it to this uh, long list of changes of, of history, then we start to build a, uh, a trustworthy history, basically, that people can have assurances has not been tampered with. Mm -hmm. How secure would you say in comparison to other 
Financial Technologies ist Bitcoin? Yes, it's it's hard to quantify security in a lot of cases because in in many cases you need to actually describe what the threats are that you are trying to secure something against. But if we're trying to create a system that is secure enough that no single person or no single entity, regardless of how much uh, influence or authority they may have, can corrupt the system or change it on a whim, then I would say uh, Bitcoin as a distributed decentralized network is far more secure than any of the traditional financial networks because those can you know, have authorities, whether it's you know, people at the banks or even a consortium of a few banks coming together and saying, you know what, uh, we're actually going to uh, change this history or we're going to change these rules and uh, you don't have to agree with it. We're just going to do it without your consent. Which is what sets proof of work apart from everything else, I think. Yeah, I mean, that we have general consensus that, that if the proof of work is valid and they have been following the rules to which we agree – then in order to go back and, and change history, you have to expend a lot of resources that probably doesn't make sense. Uh, but even beyond that, uh, changing any rules arbitrarily is not really possible in this system because we, we actually provide a very strong veto uh, for anyone who is running a you know, fully validating node software in the system. Uh, if you try, try to do even the smallest little thing that tries to break the smallest little rule, then your software essentially acts as a, a guard against that and, and as a shield where it will automatically block that, uh, that rule breaking from being applied. Is this also the reason why everybody should have a full node? I believe it is good both at an individual level uh, because it provides you a level of assurance that no one else can because you are not trusting anyone else. Um, it also just makes the system more robust because the more dispersed the the validation of the rules is uh, we we use a term like the more doors that must be kicked down you know in order to force people to to change the rules against their consent. Mm -hmm. So. I found on Twitter, I found a post from you, which says, welcome to Bitcoin newcomers. Here's your FAQ. Who should I trust? Nobody. Can you talk a little bit about the idea behind that? Yes. Uh, the, the word that we use probably too much in the system is trustless, which the idea behind that being that You know, if you are running software that is validating everything that's happening in the system, it's validating the entire history of the system, then you are not trusting that anyone else in the world is providing you with the truth. You are essentially uh, validating and forming your own perspective of the truth. Um, you know, if if anyone out there tries to give you false data, then you can very easily audit that and say, no, this is not truthful. Now, 
when I say trust no one, you know, it, it's an, at an even higher level than that, which is that, you know, there are many people in this space who will try to fool you and, you know, may try to part you uh, from your money, or they may try to convince you that, you know, you should enact certain rule changes that may not be in your best interest. And so you do need to be an independent think- thinker in order to, uh, flourish in in a space like this where you're you're trying to avoid relying upon authorities because those authorities may have different incentives than you you're, you you can't really trust that anyone has your best interest in heart other than yourself yeah but how can i live that way because if i trust no one then it's very like um no um not a good life i think It is yes, it's it's not convenient. Yeah, uh, and this is why throughout human history we have created these hierarchical like command and control systems where uh, a lot of people will you know trust an authority and basically follow whatever they say because that authority is supposed to be the expert. You know, they're the ones who spend all of their time thinking about this, and therefore whatever they recommend uh, should be the best thing to do. Um, But that can break down uh, if the authority becomes corrupt or just if the authority uh, decides that their incentives lie in some other space and doing something that's not good for you. Yeah, but on the other hand, I would like say to say like, I would trust your tips on security, for instance, and I trust other people about their experiences and because they do research and stuff. But then still, it's insecure. Yes. Now, that's not to say that... There, there should not be an issue, for example, of reputation. You know, there, there are going to be people who are more reputable than others, and you may uh, give them your time and listen to them, whereas other people you would not bother listening to. Um, but I think when we use the word trust, we even mean, you know, solely trust a single source as the truth, whereas I would hope that even people who listen to me are also listening to other people uh, who are talking about similar things and they can kind of cross-check that and verify that what I'm saying is not completely insane, that it is actually generally accepted as a good idea. Mm. Just be good informed and, and, and build your own uh, opinion. Yeah. Yeah. So the second thing is, when should I sell? Your answer is never. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, you know... Do you really want to get rid of sound money in return for unsound money is the main thing. You know, I would think that um, if you if you find yourself in a life situation where you you do really need something that cannot be purchased with Bitcoin, then sure, you might as well sell it and, and uh, pay for whatever it is that you need. But um, I think that generally like the game of just speculating is a waste of time and it's not really adding a lot of value to the system. Okay, so you're not a hodler in that sense. You use your Bitcoin to buy other Bitcoin stuff or um, because there are other people who say, I don't spend the money, I hold it because um, I don't care. You know, I, I think I believe in the digital gold. Right. Um, I don't use Bitcoin to 
do my daily purchases, you know, of food and, and other necessities. I, that's actually, I've said this before that like one of the reasons why I still have a salary, you know, I still work uh, a fairly regular job where I have benefits and, and income is because that enables me not to have to sell my Bitcoin, right? <laughs> yeah. It's just another form of investment, but no, I do still buy things from time to time. And, and sometimes I actually, um, have to buy things, you know, for example, like Bitcoin security products that are only sold for Bitcoin. So I, I certainly do still spend it from time to time. But I think that's a good thing because then you support other companies who are in the space uh, to get it forward. Yeah. Yeah. The next thing is, is Bitcoin dying because of mm -hmm, question mark? And your answer is no. Not so far. And I think it's pretty unlikely. Uh, the, the way that I generally... Uh, phrase the issue of, you know, can Bitcoin die is that it can't be dead until we all agree that it is dead. <laughs> and there are so many of us now, it's so widely distributed, so many people who are working on it that I, I can't even imagine it would have to be something incredibly both catastrophic and I think, um, dismaying, you know, that just like makes everyone, uh, lose all hope that this system uh, is going to continue to function in order for everyone to just give up on it. Yeah, so if only like 100 people worldwide would use it, it would be enough. It would still continue to exist. Mm -hmm. And we, you can actually see that with a, a number of the other tokens and stuff out there, uh, many of which are, are barely traded, barely used at all, but they still technically continue to function. They're still not dead. Yeah. And the last question is, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> and you say, nobody knows. Yeah, we're still trying to figure that out. And that's one of the, the reasons why I'm still obsessed and, and fascinated with this space is that there's still so much left to explore and learn. And, you know, we're, we're still trying to understand what the full capabilities of this technology are. Okay, so you're not you haven't stopped learning yet. Not at all, and yeah. that's why I'm constantly adding more educational resources to my website. Uh-huh, yeah, that's great. I mean, but you you know a lot about the technical aspects, I guess, from mm -hmm. Bitcoin as CTO of Casa as well as with your history and um, what you say and do. I mean, that might be a silly question, yeah, but I asked it nonetheless, uh, because many things, many people like are looking to find arguments against Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And one of it is like, uh, it's, it has been built by the NSA or the FBI sure. and they have a backdoor. Uh, what do you say? So it's, it's impossible to prove, uh, the, you know, non-existence of things. So it's, It's impossible to prove that there's not a backdoor in the protocol. However, we, we logically approach this from the opposite perspective, which is that if there was some sort of catastrophic bug, uh, most likely it would be very beneficial for someone to exploit it. And so you have to ask yourself, why has no one exploited it? If you know this code is open source, it has been reviewed by thousands, if not tens of thousands of technically competent engineers. And it, is it really so well hidden that, that no one in the world can find it? Uh, it's, it's highly unlikely. Uh, it's, it's, you know, I cannot say unequivocally impossible, but the likelihood is so low that it's not even really worth uh, worrying about. Mm. Um, you're also a cypherpunk, I think, or you identify yourself as a cypherpunk. 
Um, has this started before Bitcoin or did you get into it with Bitcoin? No, it was after. Uh, I wish that I had been you know, a cypherpunk before Bitcoin because then I probably would have gotten interested uh, earlier. But um, you know, personally became a lot more interested in privacy after my whole neighborhood got shut down by the police uh, when someone was targeting me and basically uh, put in a false hostage report. And it was at that point in time that I realized that I needed to make it much more difficult for people to find me uh, in order to essentially uh, use resources of the, the state against me or just to uh, make my life miserable in a variety of different ways. There are many, many types of sort of griefing attacks that can be done against people these days if they have your physical location. Um, I've, I've heard of everything from screwing with your utility bills to um, trying to take ownership of like the deed to your house. And of course, the, the swatting is one of the, the more extreme ones. And, uh, you know, it can be dangerous. Uh, thankfully, that situation ended without any incident. But uh, you know, it was uh, traumatic and want to avoid any similar type of things happening in the future. Mm -hmm. So nobody knows where you live. Or how do you manage that? Yes, yeah, so I would say I could probably count on my fingers how many people know my real address uh and it it becomes it, it becomes tricky it, it's it's a really a new lifestyle yeah i mean you only use burner phones or how do you manage that yes uh you know buying sim cards anonymously with uh, cash or prepaid uh, yeah, debit but cards that, in austria that's not possible anymore you have to register now yes i actually just noticed uh, the news article today where it's like 80% of countries require uh, registration of your identity with your your sim yeah and it's because of you know terrorism yeah so uh, and and i mean that's not the only thing i mean the the united states also offers a lot of legal protection on the privacy side, um, you know, I'm able to set up legal entities that obscure ownership of my assets so that my name isn't listed in, in private or public registries. Yeah, but I think that's not for the usual person, you know. I mean, you have to research again and, and found a company even. Yeah. So it's not easy. And I mean, it's not easy in Austria, for instance, um, as a business, I have to have my business physical location on my website. Right. Uh, that is the unfortunate thing that I've really discovered as I've gone through the, this process over the past couple of years is that even in the situations where you can get a high degree of privacy, It takes a lot of resources and we have effectively, well, I would say that most nations have effectively killed privacy for its citizens, at least on, from the legal standpoint. And even the other nations that have not killed it legally have effectively made it much more expensive. So mm. we've really, we've priced privacy out of most people's day-to-day uh, -day lives is even if you are interested in privacy, it's unlikely that you're willing to put in the time, the money, the, the effort to actually regain your privacy. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I have to be, to be honest, I only started being more private uh, when I got into the Bitcoin space, like securing my coins or like um, also started to use a VPN, but mm -hmm. it's not easy because I have never used it before. And now I go to some websites and I don't see anything because they are blocked. Yes. So what do I do now? Now I have to learn how to manage my VPN software and 
I mean, I go to them and ask them support ticket and stuff and I don't get an answer. So yeah. then I turn it off again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's not easy to do. And um, from the Bitcoin part, um, what do you recommend the usual user to do to um, restore or secure his or her privacy in Bitcoin? Yes, privacy in Bitcoin is pretty difficult, but it, it begins at the beginning and it It depends on, once again, how much effort you're willing to go to. Um, if you go the easy route and you go to an exchange that asks for your identification, then you should basically assume that all of that money is going to be tied to you. And so then, if that's the case, and you want to try to break the ties between you and your money, then you have to figure out, well, do I want to use a mixer, you know, to try to anonymize my coins? And unfortunately, that is mostly beyond the reach of, of the average person at this point in time. You know, I'm certainly hopeful that it will continue to become easier, but um, it's also hard to even really know what the level of privacy that you have on your coins is uh, if you did not you know, purchase them with cash, basically. If you did not purchase them in a way that did not require anti-money laundering, know your customer uh, registration. But you never know where your coins come from, or? I mean, if I even buy with cash, I don't know the traces. Right. I mean, obviously, you can look at them on the blockchain, but that's not going to give you any identities or tell you what they've been used for. And, um, you know, this is One of the things about you know fungibility and taint analysis and, and all of that is that if everyone was doing techniques that are currently considered to be uh, suspicious or shady and you know mixing their coins together, then we would all be you know sufficiently quote unquote dirty uh, in in the taint analysis of our coins. But the problem right now is that only a small subset of people are actually using some of this privacy technology. And so the ones who are using it uh, will look more suspicious <laughs> to the entities out there that are trying to de-anonymize transactions. Mm. That's exactly what a guy said to me. He works at the uh, UNO, uh, United Nations office, you know, like tracking down uh, terrorism financing and money laundering. And he said that the criminals in most cases use Bitcoin because if they would use Monero, uh, they would be easier to find because there are much less transactions in Monero. Hmm. That was his idea about it. As I said at the beginning, there are several ways to store your Bitcoin securely. But in a way, you always have to trust the manufacturer, of course. That is why I love to know who are the people behind these products, what makes them tick, what are their values and goals. Can I trust them? That's one of the reasons why I do these interviews for me and for you. So if you are one of the people who thinks of investing in Bitcoin long term and in the most easy way and who prefers not to use a hardware wallet, then the card wallet is for you. You'll get one Bitcoin address, you can send Bitcoin to it and all you have to do is to store it in a safe place. That's it. The manufacturers are the Austrian State Printing House, which is also responsible for the Austrian passports and Coinfinity. Austria's first Bitcoin broker. Order your card wallet now at cardwallet.com slash Anita and get 20% off the price. 
I think you also did a technical research on Libra, the Facebook um, currency or stablecoin. Uh, what is your result on this research? What's the technology about? Yeah, I mean, I, I read their white papers. I looked at the code a little bit. Um, essentially, I felt like it was far too early to really say a whole lot about it. They, you know, they, they put this announcement out when it was incomplete. <laughs> and so we're basically left speculating about how they might go about implementing some of the things that they claim they're going to be implementing. And, and in fact, uh, even like within the white paper, there are a fair number of sections that say, you know, we would like to do something like this, but we haven't really figured it out yet. I think that the, the most relevant thing to note with Libra is that they are asking for permission and then building rather than just building and putting it out there, you know, the way that Satoshi did. So they actually face a much greater challenge. And we've already seen that from like the likes of France and Germany who are saying, you know, we don't want you to be doing any of this. Yeah, which is understandable. I mean, because if uh, Libra comes to like smaller countries, they have more money than the countries. So, and I don't know, I wouldn't want the corporate money either. And privacy, I mean, <laughs> we don't have to talk about that. I mean, they say they wouldn't use the transaction history for anything, but they always say they don't use anything for yeah, selling yeah, it. Yeah, and I mean, it's possible that at the protocol level there might not be, but it's also obvious that the uh, Calibre wallet will be the only wallet, uh, at least at the beginning for a while, and, you know, that's basically Facebook, and we should probably assume that they're going to be tracking everything they can. Yeah. Um, I found another idea that you had, like a miner in every household, and the idea is that the water heater is a small miner, and you basically buy your Bitcoin with the energy bill. How realistic is this, this future? Yeah, you know, I was talking about that, I think, in 2015 or 2016. And I do believe that there is a product out there. <laughs> um, I'm not sure how feasible it really is, though. Um, the main reason that I say that is because at Casa, we started shipping these nodes about a year ago. And we've learned a lot over the past year. And essentially, acting as a server administrator within your home is it's asking a lot of almost anyone, even technical people. Uh, there, there's so many more things that can go wrong when you're, you're administering a server out of your home rather than out of a data center that has a lot of redundancy, both on the internet and the electricity side that, um, you know, we find people's nodes uh, screw up quite often due to just being in this more adversarial environment. Um, <clears throat> it's a lot harder to predict and you end up having to build more tools that basically help the user administer that thing. So uh, I'm sure the same would basically apply if you had mm -hmm. a miner in your water heater. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that. So um, is is the, the Casa node... What is it doing? Is it hidden behind Tor or is it then on the list of the nodes? What, what, what is it doing? Yeah, so initially we did not have Tor support. And if you wanted to be you know, a publicly accessible node, you would have to go into your, your router and figure out how to do port forwarding. And that was also asking a lot of most people. But then we figured out that 
Tor actually solves a lot of problems. It solves the privacy issue. It solves the security issue of encrypted traffic because otherwise you have to figure out how to generate an SSL certificate, which is also asking a lot. And, uh, and third, it solves the, the networking problems, uh, where, you know, your router at home is going to block pretty much any incoming connection unless you manually tell it otherwise. But if you're running on Tor, you just completely bypass all of the, those port issues. Uh, Tor is just a completely different network that, uh, the router is not even looking at. So, um, we've, we found that, you know, just having a simple, you know, single button click to turn on Tor is actually the the most user-friendly way for them to be able to operate what is essentially a server that they can then access from anywhere globally. Mm -hmm. And uh, what can I do with the full node? I can uh, verify my own transactions? Yeah, so on the Casa node, we're currently running Bitcoin Core and we're running LND. And so you can have an on-chain wallet there that you make deposits to that is, you know, uh, using the full node to, to verify. And then you can use those on-chain deposits to uh, create lightning channels that are managed by L&D and then, you know, make and receive payments through the lightning network, either Uh, by using the the dash the web dashboard that is on the node itself, or by using our Sats app, which is a mobile application which also connects to the node over Tor. Okay, and can I also connect to the full node with a smartphone wallet from the on the go? It is possible, uh, though. Not a lot of mobile wallet software supports connecting directly to a single trusted node. There's only a handful of, of uh, the SPV software out there that allows you to do that. So it's a little trickier. Um, uh, a few people have done it, but it's not something that we, we generally like, tell people to use. Okay, And somebody like me has to wait <laughs> until it's con more convenient. <laughs> yeah, so ultimately what I'm planning for is you know we have other products like casa keymaster which is our, our multi-sig um, vault product and i want to continue to integrate all of these things together so that we can offload more of the verification away from the casa servers and have your keymaster talking uh, directly to your your node at home what is my keymaster Ah, so the, the, the key master is another mobile app, which essentially allows you to manage your key shield, uh, either three of five or two of three multi-signature wallet. Um, but then the majority of those keys are actually not on the phone. They are on other hardware devices that you keep geographically distributed. Okay, so I have several hardware wallets, for instance, and use it for a multi-sig. Okay, and the Keymaster is the the app for for installing it or configuring it. Yes, uh, think of it as like a management dashboard. Okay, um, uh -huh. and I also read you have a seedless setup. Yes. Does this mean I don't have to uh, secure my words anymore? Exactly. How can that work? <laughs> yes, this is a unique aspect of the Keymaster. Essentially. When we were looking at the security model of, of a multi-sig setup, we realized that what people are doing, you know, you're, you're buying a Trezor or a Ledger or a cold card, and when you initialize it, it gives you a list of words, and then it says, write these down and keep them safe. 
And when we started analyzing what that actually means, you know, write them down and keep it safe, there's a whole mountain of IT and security knowledge that is hidden under that sentence that most people just gloss over and they don't understand the, uh, the critical nature of what they were just instructed to do. So what, when we started probing the different options of like, how do we tell our users to keep their seeds safe? Eventually we just came to the conclusion that it would be so much simpler if they just didn't have to keep their seeds safe. And so how do you do that? you only have the seed, you only have the private keys on the hardware device. They never leave the hardware device in the first place. Then it becomes easier to to think about and reason about the security of those keys because you know that when, when they're on the device, they are safe from both hackers and uh, physical attackers uh, because, you know, these devices are protected with... Uh, PIN code to unlock them. So the problem that arises from this is you're going to think, well, what happens if my device breaks? You know, I've now I've just lost one of my key sets. Well, in our system, that's actually okay. And one of the functions that the Keymaster app provides is uh, built-in key rotation. So essentially, if you have a ledger, trezor, cold card, and it stops working, or you lose it, or someone you know destroys it or steals it, or really it gets compromised in any way, then it's very simple for you to go buy a new one, go into the Keymaster app, click on that device, and, and just say, I need to replace the device. Then you plug in your new device, and we have a wizard that walks you through uh, sweeping the funds out of your current key set and, and depositing them into the new key set. And in that way, you actually end up with a much more flexible uh, security setup where you're, you have a level of robustness against loss because you're keeping your devices geographically separated so that you know, a catastrophic event should only destroy one, maybe two of them, uh, and then uh, you know, when they get destroyed or compromised, then it's actually very easy for you to replace them. So is the seed then on all the hardware devices so at the each, same time? Each hardware device has its own has unique its own, seed. Yeah? Yes. Okay. I mean that I have that now too. No, I mean every device has its own seed, so I would have like five seeds on paper, for instance. Yes, but I assume I, I assume that each of those is probably a single signature standalone wallet. Yeah, yeah. So whereas this uh, is basically combines them all into one wallet that is a multi-signature wallet. Mm -hmm. And this one, the seed for this one multi-signature wallet is on which device? Ah, well, so there are, for, for the, the three of five model, that means there are five seed phrases. The, the seedless setup, I mean. Yes, yeah, so each, each device has its root master public mm -hmm. and private key, mm -hmm. which is essentially the seed phrase. Mm -hmm. So you're, you'll have, uh, you know, one on your mobile device and then, uh, three different hardware devices. And then the last one is actually held by CASA offline as a disaster recovery mechanism. Held by CASA <coughs> offline. That means in a server no. from CASA. Uh, not on a server, no. no. Com <laughs> offline, completely yeah, offline, yeah. But how do you get to know it? 
Uh, so you don't need to know the seed phrase. Uh, you actually only need to know the extended public keys for, for that set. Um, so when you set up a three of five Casa key master wallet, you initialize your three devices and your mobile, and then Casa also, um, assigns a, uh, a set of, of public private keys to you. And what we give you is instructions that contain um, all of your public keys, which um, is necessary to uh, determine the addresses of the wallet. It's also necessary if you ever want to do a recovery of your wallet where you're not using CASA software or CASA servers. So we, we provide you with what we call the Sovereign Recovery Guide, which is a step-by-step uh, instructions for how you would be able to load your hardware devices and all of the public keys into other open source software and then be able to spend using that software without ever relying upon CASA. Okay, because that would have been my next question, of yeah. course. <laughs> so... Uh, I mean, I I have the feeling that Casa is building really a set of of products around security and privacy. Um, what's the vision? I mean, do you want to become the Google suit of security in Bitcoin? Something like that. I mean, we we think of ourselves as providing almost like. Um, luxury white glove concierge service uh, for security in the crypto space um, at an even higher like broad vision level our our goal is to help improve personal sovereignty and note that you know I'm, I'm not saying help improve people store their bitcoin or store their private keys but personal sovereignty in every way possible it just so happens that bitcoin is one of the most obvious low hanging fruit to personal sovereignty financial sovereignty but there are so many other things like data sovereignty or or managing your identity or really any personal information um that I think that we're going to see over the long term this suite expand to do far more than just uh, crypto finance. Hmm. And um, what is your vision for Bitcoin? What do you think what will happen in the next years? It's very difficult to say other than, you know, I want to see more people using it. And the reason that I've been doing basically the same thing for five years now continuing to work on pretty boring low-level security uh, software is because I think that we need to have a very solid user-friendly foundation of security if we want average people who don't live and eat and breathe Bitcoin all day long to be able to do this. Uh, you know, they they need to be as confident with their Bitcoin wallet as they are with the money in their bank. Mm, and so yeah. we still have a long ways to go for that. Yeah. Okay. But that sounds like a good goal. <laughs> yeah. Then thank you. Um, I mean, if I ask you, do you have any recommendations for our listeners uh, to learn Bitcoin, then I think we should mention your own page. That's uh, absolutely. LOP. Lop.net, or if it's easier to remember, Bitcoin.page will also get you there. Oh, that's very easy to remember. What is your? What are your favorite um, guides? Do you have any favorites? 
Some of my favorites are actually the ones in the getting started section. Uh, there are a few that are basically uh, cartoons, you know, that they're, they're accessible, you know, even for young children to help them understand some of the high level uh, reasons why what we're working on is different and why it's important. Do you mean the, the book from the Bitcoin rabbi? The, the But yes, Bitcoin Rabbi is uh, the, in the Bitcoin book, uh, and there, there's actually there's also a really good set of um, cartoon guides that I believe the Square folks put out a year or two ago. Oh, okay. Very cute cartoons. Ah, okay, that's nice. It's another way of uh, looking at it. Yeah. Where can people find and follow your work? I am really only on Twitter these days. Uh, handle is L-O-P-P. And uh, other than that, you can find me on GitHub, but I, I link to all of my, my active places at the bottom of my lop.net website. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much for this interview. It was a nice talk. I hope you enjoyed it too. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Bye. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks also to my sponsors at Shift Crypto Security. Get their Bitbox O2 now with free shipping with the code ANITA. Thanks to Coinfinity, you can get their card wallet now with 20% off at cardwallet.com slash ANITA. And to Salamantex, who have a great all-in-one payment solution for businesses. And as always, this is a podcast, not financial advice. Please do your own research. If you like my show, please subscribe to it in your podcast player and share the episode on social media. You can find all links that were mentioned in the show notes on the website or in your podcast player. If you are in the mood for a donation, feel free to tip me at tippinme at Anita Posh. You can contact me also on Twitter, LinkedIn or YouTube. Goodbye from Vienna of Wiederhören. Music, start with yes, delicate beats. Idea, content and production, yours truly, Anita Posch.